What do you think faithful Christian discipleship looks like? What goals and priorities do you think should define a Christian's life? I imagine if we went around the room and tried to answer that question, we'd get a bunch of pretty different responses to those questions. In the second paragraph of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, we get a glimpse, I think, of how he might answer those questions. I'm going to invite you to turn now to Romans chapter 1. We embarked on this journey just last Sunday. We've come to the brink of the Grand Canyon, as it were, of gospel exposition in the Bible, and we're going to take a look around. We're going to explore and then try to describe what we see, which is not an altogether easy task. And yet I trust that as we journey through this great letter that we will find and feast upon the riches of Christ and his gospel there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put up for you now the, uh, the broad outline. I think it should be up there. Yeah. Um, I shared this with you last week. This is a very big, broad uh, outline of the book of Romans. I'd encourage you to maybe scribble this down somewhere in the margins of whatever you're taking notes on. If you have one of those scripture journals, you can put it on the first blank page right before the text of Romans begins. By the way, we ran out of those. I've ordered a few more, but they didn't get here in time to have out this morning. So if you still want to have one, you of course can order them for yourself, or you could hope later in the week we should have a few more on hand so uh, you could get them from us uh, in a few days. So sorry that they're not here. But so broadly speaking, the, the, the book of Romans is, is about the righteousness of God. I've called the series Righteousness Revealed. And the, in the theme verses that we'll look at next week, it's, we're told that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And so really the whole book has to do with God's righteousness in the gospel. So the first four chapters are the gospel as the gift of God's righteousness. And then chapters five through eight are about how God's righteousness are secured in Christ. It is his work that has secured his righteousness for us. And then chapters nine through 11 are about how God deals righteously with Jews and Gentiles in relation to this gospel. And then the final uh, chapters, 12 through 16, are about God's righteousness in community, God's righteousness uh, lived out. What does it look like for a community of saints uh, to live out the, the gospel of God's righteousness? And so there's a broad outline for you. So at any various point, uh, wherever we are, you'll have at least that broad sense of where we are in the structure of the book. But of course, you can break this down into much smaller portions and in different ways, different themes and things have been suggested, but this is the way we're, we're approaching it. So we're going to read today verses 8 through 15. That's what we'll look at today. We, we covered the first seven verses of the book last week, where Paul, of course, identified himself as the author the apostle of, of Jesus Christ, and he identified the, the Christians in Rome as his audience, and then he gave a prayer of blessing that God's grace and peace uh, would flow to them. And he sort of, uh, in a very short, concise way, sort of uh, uh, elaborated upon the gospel of God for which he is a minister, and uh, that is the core content of what he proclaims, and indeed what takes up the rest of this book, the gospel of God. And so now he, be, he begins in verse 8 with a, with a kind of a personal word addressing this audience as it relates to their relationship to each other. And I said last week and pointed out that he has never been to Rome. He did not plant the church in Rome. We don't know who did. 
uh, probably Jewish uh, converts who were visiting Jerusalem during Pentecost and then returned to Rome and started evangelizing and began a church. But Paul has no personal relationship with these churches, having never been to Rome. But he begins to write about, <clears throat> excuse me, about his hopes uh, to be there. And before we read these verses, I want to <clears throat> hearken back to what he says in verse 5. There's my water, excuse me. <clears throat> in verse 5, he said that he had received from, from Christ grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, that is Christ's name, among the nations. <clears throat> and I think that's something of a mission statement for Paul. Why does Paul live and breathe and exist in order to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of Christ's name? And we talked about how the obedience of faith is more than just faith in itself as an act of obedience to the gospel, though that's true. But really, the obedience, the ongoing life of transformation that flows from faith in Christ and his gospel. And so his goal then for his life and ministry is to bring about this increased obedience and sanctification among the people of God, particularly among the, the Gentiles. And so with that mission statement of his in mind, we're going to read verses 8 through 15 and we'll see what Paul intends to convey here in these verses. So, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time with me in honor of the Word of God as I read. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. Here's a big idea for these verses that I see. In these verses, Paul enumerates for us four priorities of a faithful servant of Christ. Four priorities of a faithful servant of Christ. Of course, this is what Paul aims to be. He identifies himself in verse 1 as a servant of Christ Jesus. And he speaks about how he's been called to be an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. So, of course, his aim is to be a faithful servant of Christ. And I think in these verses, 8 through 15, he gives us priorities that define the nature of his life and ministry. So, Paul's expressions of joy and, and longing concerning the Romans are precisely because of his devotion to his mission. That reality echoes loud and clear in this paragraph where we see these four 
priorities of a faithful servant of Christ. And we'll just take them one at a time. Here's number one. The joy of growing faith. The joy of growing faith. I take this from verse 8, where Paul praises God for the Romans. Why does he praise God for the Romans? Namely, because of their faith. Because their faith is known among the whole world. Perhaps there's a bit of hyperbole here, but as Paul is traveling and planting churches and ministering among the Gentile world in Greece and and Asia Minor and elsewhere, uh, he is hearing reports about how the the Roman churches are are doing. And so there is faith among the Roman uh, uh, Gentiles and, of course, Jewish people as well who live in, in, in Rome. And he is celebrating that there is faith, right? That, that the, there is faith among the, the, the Romans. He rejoices indeed so fervently at the word of the Romans' faith precisely because his life's calling concerns the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, right? That's what he's after. What he's looking to do is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And so as he hears that faith exists and is growing and is spreading in Rome and beyond, in regions that he has not yet personally been, he celebrates that this faith is growing and spreading. And there's three aspects here. He speaks a good bit of his prayers. There's three aspects of his prayers that I think we should notice here. The first is this. He is aware of God's work in salvation and sanctification. And that comes again right from verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Well, why not thank them? Why not say, I thank you so much for your faith. I thank you so much that you've trusted in Christ and that you are growing in him. I'm grateful to you. That's not who he's grateful to. Why? Because it's God's work. The fact that there is faith among the Romans and that the gospel is spreading among this community is the work of God. And so Paul recognizes immediately who is to thank for the growth of faith in Rome. It's not them. Now, he's thankful for them. He celebrates them. There's clear joy in his heart as he considers the faith that exists and is growing among this community, but his gratitude is directed toward God. He is aware of God's work in their salvation and in their sanctification, their their progress in holiness. We notice that his prayers are frequent and persistent. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. God is my witness. And so he's, he's calling God to witness something that, of course, they can't see. Right? The Romans don't see his prayer life. They can't know what he does in, the, in his prayer life or what's going on in his heart. And so it's, he calls God as his witness. God sees. God knows how much I pray for you, how often I long for you. So God is my witness, <clears throat> skipping the next phrase for a second, that without ceasing... I mention you always in my prayers, without ceasing, and always. Again, perhaps hyperbolic language, but the point is that Paul frequently is going before God on behalf of these Roman Christians and is persistent in what he's asking. So his prayers are frequent and persistent. 
And note, finally, that his prayers are dependent on divine sovereignty. Look in verse 10. What he, one of the things, the thing he points out that he's always asking is that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, right? I haven't been there yet. I want to be there. I haven't made it. And so I am regularly praying that God would open a door, right? That he would open the way for me to travel to Rome and visit you and spend time with you. And so even in his prayers about what he desires, what does Paul want? He wants to go to Rome. He wants to spend time with the Roman churches. Even in his prayers for what he wants, he recognizes he is at the mercy of God's sovereign will, which is why he prays specifically, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And so his prayers are aware of God's work in salvation and sanctification. They are frequent and persistent, and they are dependent upon divine sovereignty. Indeed, submit themselves to divine sovereignty. Lord, this is what I want. Please, if it's in your will, let this happen, right? And I would suggest that our own prayers ought to share much in common with Paul's example here. Our prayers ought to be well aware of God as the active agent in changing anybody's hearts, including our own, by the way. When we're praying for our own growth, we pray knowing that it is God who must work in us. It is the Spirit that must stir us. It is God that must give new desires to us to replace the old broken ones. And when we pray for others, whether it's for somebody who isn't a Christian to come to faith, or it's for someone who is a Christian to grow in their faith. We are entrusting that person's heart to God and saying, you are the one who can deal in this realm. I have no power to change anybody's heart, including my own. And so we ought to be mindful in our own prayers. We are submitting hearts to God and asking him to do what only he can do. Our prayers ought to be frequent and persistent. I think maybe this is a stumbling block for a number of us. I know it is for me. I think at times after I've prayed for something, I feel like maybe it's rude or presumptuous or annoying to God or something if I keep going back with the same thing. Well, I already asked him. He knows I want it. Nevertheless, there's a persistence here uh, that, that, is, that should characterize our, our prayers. We should not be embarrassed or ashamed to repeatedly request of God what is on our heart. And you've probably heard stories or known people who prayed for years and years and years and years for the same thing, perhaps the salvation of a loved one. Maybe this will never happen, but I'm going to keep praying and pleading and asking God that it would happen. And then lo and behold, 20 years later, this person comes to faith in Christ. And often they'll point back to I prayed over and over and over and over through the years and look at God's faithfulness in answering this prayer, right? So don't be ashamed or embarrassed to repeat requests before the Lord. Knowing, point three, that everything we put before him as a petition is submitted to his divine sovereignty. What he wills, he will do. If what we're asking is not in his plans for us, then he will direct us some other way. Or the answer will be, no, or not yet, or whatever it is. 
But anything we ask for, we ask knowing we are at his mercy and what he desires and plans and purposes is best, even if it's not what I would choose. And so I think this is a good model for our own prayer life. But the first priority that we see here of a faithful servant of Jesus Christ is that he is overjoyed at the growth of faith among the Roman Christians. And so the priority there is the joy of growing faith. The second priority of a faithful servant of Christ that we see is the strength of mutual encouragement. The strength of mutual encouragement. In verses 9 through 12, Paul prays and longs to visit the Romans. Why? For mutual spiritual encouragement. That's his desire. That's his goal. So you've noticed that he emphatically articulates his desire to visit the Christians in Rome. Consider the following. In verses 9 and 10, he prays that he'll be able to visit. Right? And we looked at that just a minute ago. And he says there, when he calls God as witness to how frequently he prays this, he says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel, which is probably something like in the deepest part of me, from the core of my being. The NIV and, and New Living Translations translate this as with all my heart, right? For God, whom I serve with all that I am in the gospel of his son, is witness, right? And so you see not just the fact of his frequent prayers, but the earnestness of them, the fervency of them. There's this deep longing and desire that he has that he carries to God in prayer. In verse 11, he says, for I long to see you. That's kind of an explanation for why he keeps praying this. I keep praying that God might open a door for me to come to you. Why? Verse 11, because I long to see you. In verse 13, he tells them that he has often tried to visit them, right? I can't tell you how many times I've attempted to make my way there and something gets in the way, right? Thus far, I have been prevented. But he's often tried, he tells them in verse 13. And then the last thing he says down in verse 15 is, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. And so in these four times and ways, he is emphatic in his desire to be with them. But why? What is the reason for this deep longing to visit them? Indeed, he doesn't know them. So it's not the kind of personal, relational connection you might expect. I miss you. We had a great relationship, and then I had to go away, and now I wish I could be back with you. It's not like that, because he doesn't know them. He's never been there. What is the reason for this deep longing to visit them? Look again in verse 11. I long to see you, and then he tells us, that, so that, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, and it's almost like he kind of stops himself and backtracks a little bit to make sure we don't get the wrong idea. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so he is longing to see them so that there can be the strength that comes from mutual encouragement as we encourage one another in the faith. And so there's two sides of that coin. The first 
is that he may impart to them, right? He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, that's a vague phrase. Most obviously, and within the immediate context, the gospel is the, the, the thing that he would like to impart to them. As he says down in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So in other words, the preaching and teaching of Christ. That's the most obvious and within the context thing that he is wanting to impart to them. Um, but it could be that there's a broader gift or, or a spiritual gift that he thinks he could minister to the people with while he's there that would make itself apparent uh, while they're together, but we're not sure. But at the very least, the impartation on Paul's part is, is the gospel, is the gift of the, the teaching of Jesus Christ. That you may be <clears throat> strengthened, right? To strengthen you. The NASB says that you may be established. So in other words, what he's interested in bringing to them is not some trite, you got this affirmation. No, he is longing to bring the rich spiritual nourishment of gospel truth and reminders of God's promises. That's real encouragement. And that's what he longs to impart. To impart some spiritual gift that you may be established or to strengthen you. That's what encouragement does. And the other side of this coin <clears throat> is that he may receive from them, right? He sort of interrupts himself. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged. So he doesn't want them to think this is a one-sided relationship. Though, of course, Paul is an apostle. Paul has an authority that the other Christians don't have. Paul can bring about, by the proclamation of the gospel, uh, the, the will of God in certain ways and in certain kinds of power that probably the average pew warmer at First Baptist Rome can't really necessarily bring about. But nevertheless, Paul does not see himself in this sort of elevated way, but as a fellow traveler, right? A fellow saint with the members of these churches. And so he wants to gain from them as well. I trust that I will impart something to you, and I expect that I will receive from you as well. And in doing that, he expresses an unspeakably precious reality of the Christian life, the necessity and delight of mutual encouragement. In short, we need each other, friends. In order to live a fruitful Christian life as Christ's disciples, we must depend on each other. And again, just as with Paul and the Romans, there's two sides of this coin. Number one, you need to receive spiritual nourishment from other Christians. You might not think that you do, but you do. You need to receive spiritual nourishment from other Christians. So put yourself in a position to receive. Invite instruction and watchfulness and care from others in the church. Maintain a posture of teachability. Expect to learn from others. You need to receive spiritual nourishment from other Christians. And the flip side of the coin is also true. You need to give spiritual nourishment to other Christians. Don't neglect to use the gifts and strengths that God has given you 
for the sake of others. Maybe a little challenge would be this. Intentionally aim to do spiritual good to someone else in the church in the next week. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you guidance on what that might be, what that might look like, but intentionally pursue an opportunity to do spiritual good to somebody else. We need to be regularly in the the position to both receive and give spiritual nourishment and encouragement to one another. And so the second priority of a faithful servant of Christ is the strength of mutual encouragement. This is exactly what Paul does, right? Out of single-minded devotion to his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, he earnestly desires and seeks the spiritual good of the Christians in Rome. And he knows that in turn, he will himself be strengthened by their faith and love in Christ. The strength of mutual encouragement. Number three, the third priority of faithful Christian servants is the goal of spiritual fruit. The goal of spiritual fruit. In other words, a faithful servant of Christ has as his or her goal in relationships spiritual fruit. Not just physical things, tangible things, material things, but spiritual growth. So Paul says here in verse 13 that he has long tried to come to them, but unsuccessfully. Why? Why does he want to go to them to reap a spiritual harvest among them, right? I've often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, So he's working among the Gentiles, he's seeing the fruit of his labors, he's seeing people come to faith, he's seeing churches that he planted previously growing in their understanding of the gospel and their life in Christ, and he wants to experience the same kind of growth among the Romans. So because Paul's life goal is to faithfully discharge the duty assigned him by Christ, he not only desires to be among the Christians in Rome, he is actually purposed to go there many times. He has tried. He has made plans. Okay, next stop, Rome. And something keeps happening, right? I have been prevented. Well, what, what prevents him? What has hindered him from making it to Rome? On the surface, the timing and logistics of his own missionary work in Macedonia and Greece, where he's been traveling. And so things don't always work out the way that he expects, and travel plans have to take last-minute turns and those sorts of things. So there's logistics and timing things that have probably not worked out. But beneath the practical and logistical hindrances is the providential hand of God, of course. Why has he been hindered? Well, ultimately because God has not yet opened the door for him to be there. Just a reminder, he said back in verse 10 as he was praying, he is asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So he's submitted his own plans to the sovereignty of God, and he knows that it may change or it might not work the way I expect. There's another really interesting phrase in Acts chapter 16 uh, where, there's, where it said that they were trying to minister in a certain place, uh, but then it says that they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe that means a door closed and they tried to go there and couldn't and they went, oh, I guess the Holy Spirit isn't letting us. Or maybe that means the Holy Spirit revealed to them in prayer, don't go to Asia. We're not sure, right? But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go to Asia and so they made a new plan, right? So sometimes it works like that. I intended to go to Rome, but the Holy Spirit said, nah, not right now. And so they had to go do something else. But all of this is a good reminder that we live our entire lives, including our great plans and desires for ministry and spiritual fruit, under the sovereign hand of God. Our plans are only so good. The Apostle James exhorts us, rather than saying, Next year we'll go here or we'll go to this town and that town and trade and do life there. He says you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll go here and do this or that. And that's the truth. Every plan we make is subject to the sovereign will of God. He will either stamp it with his approval or he will deny it and it will not come about. So it's a good reminder that we live under his sovereign hand. Well, what is the spiritual harvest that Paul hopes to reap, right? He says he's tried to come to them but has been hindered. And the reason he's tried to come to them is to reap some spiritual harvest, right? To reap some harvest among you. Well, in the immediate context, I think we can point to verse 11. We've already read it, but there it is again. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Right? So, in some sense, the spiritual harvest that he's hoping to glean among the Romans is simply their strengthening in the faith. Right? If I come to you, I will be able, by the preaching of the gospel, to strengthen you. And that's one aspect of it, certainly. But in the wider context, I want to point you to some, toward, something toward the very end of the book of Romans. In Romans 15, verses 15 and 16, he speaks about sort of why he's written the letter in retrospect here. And he says, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Here's the phrase I want to hang out on. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul sees himself as serving a priestly role in sort of bringing to God an offering, right? And the offering is what? It's Gentile Christians who are growing in their faith. So it's Paul's desire is to be able to stand before Christ one day and to say, here are the Gentiles among whom I ministered and their growing faith in you, their belief in the gospel and their growth in godliness, right? That's what he desires. And so he says that he's hoping indeed to be able to present an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The desired fruit of a servant of Christ is the maturity of the church. That's what Paul's after. The character of Christ lived out among God's people. A growing demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit for the sake of of God's glory among the nations. By the way, that's the same word uh, in, as in verse 7 where he says, uh, all, is it verse 7 or is it verse 6? Verse 6, uh, for the faith, uh, for the obedience of faith, for the sake of his name among all the 
nations, ethne. That's the same word that's translated as Gentiles here in verse 13. That I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the ethne, all right? The, the nations, the peoples. So he's not seeking personal honor or position. He's not seeking advancement or respect. He is interested in a holy people prepared and presented to God for his glory. And that is the priority of a faithful servant of Christ. Not looking for acclaim, not looking to have the most popular podcast in the world, not looking to have a platform. He's looking simply for a people sanctified by the Holy Spirit so that they can be presented to God as a holy people. And so the priority of the third priority of a faithful Christian servant is the goal of spiritual fruit. And the fourth and final priority of a servant of Christ that we see here is the calling of gospel proclamation. The calling of gospel proclamation. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. Paul expresses that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. Why is he eager to preach the gospel to them? Essentially, to fulfill his mission from Christ. This is what Christ has given him to do. So in the first three in this list, Paul stated the priority and then gave a reason or a motivation behind that priority. So I give thanks for you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I long to see you. Why? So that we may be mutually encouraged. I have tried to come to you. Why? So that I might reap some harvest among you, right? Here, in the fourth one, it reverses the, the formula, but it gives us the same basic pattern. So Paul's aim and then the reason for that aim. In this case, he is, verse 15, eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because, verse 14, he is under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, etc. Wise and foolish. So, before we go farther in this, let's talk about Greeks and barbarians. Who are these people? Right? What, what does that mean in verse 14? So he says, he is, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Greeks would simply be uh, those who spoke Greek and have adopted Greek culture. All right? So these are the, the, the sophisticated, educated, cultured elite. Right? So his obligation We'll get to that in a second. His obligation then, his ministry is to the, the Greek, the sophisticated, the elite, the educated ones, and to the barbarians. Well, who is that? Well, that's the ones who stand outside the, uh, the norms of Greek culture. They're uneducated, uncultured, uncivilized, designated such, designated as barbarians, because to the sophisticated crowd, their non-Greek speech sounds like bar, 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 bar. That's kind of what that, what that comes from. If you think racism and classism is a new sin, think again. In other words, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is for those at the top of Roman society and for those at the bottom. The elites and the commoners. And so the wise and the foolish then, in verse 14, is just a repetition of the Greek barbarian dichotomy. The Greek, of course, would have been considered the wise by worldly standards, and the barbarian would have been, would have been considered foolish. And oh my, isn't that good news? 
Aren't you glad that God didn't single out the smart, the educated, and the beautiful for salvation, but that the gospel is for all people, no matter their social standing or cultural acumen or education level? Indeed, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So rejoice today, friends, at being the foolish ones whom God has chosen. That's good news. The gospel is for the Greek and the barbarian, the wise, the foolish, the elite, the commoner, the top, the bottom. All people are included in the call to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of eternal life. It's for everyone. Well, what does it mean that he's under obligation? Right? He says at the beginning of verse 14, I am under obligation to Greeks and barbarians. Why is he under obligation to them? Has, have, have they done something, given something to them, to him that he then has to repay? No, essentially, basically, he is under obligation to them because of the calling Jesus Christ has placed on his life. Right? He has been commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles, and so it is his duty to fulfill that mission and labor fruitfully among the Gentiles. But he's not laboring out of obligation to Christ. Right? He doesn't say, I'm obligated to Christ to preach to you. He says, I'm obligated to Greeks and barbarians. I'm obligated to wise and foolish, right? I'm obligated to these people. If he were laboring out of obligation to Christ, that actually would get the gospel all wrong and be a pretty dangerous mentality from which to serve. I am serving Christ in order to pay back the debt that I owe him. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not a transaction whereby he gives you eternal life and now you promise to give him the rest of your life to kind of pay him back what he paid you forward. That's not what the gospel is at all. His salvation, as well as his apostleship, are gifts of grace from Christ. Look back at verse 5. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So his mission statement is all about what he's received from Christ, which includes the grace of salvation and the calling of apostleship. This is all a gift of grace to him. It's not a debt that he owes to Jesus in a transactional sense. Since he's done this for me, I now owe him this repayment. No, the debt he owes is to people, to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish. As we were talking about this passage in our Wednesday night Bible study, Dwayne Garcia had a really helpful little analogy of this. He said, suppose, so I'll, I'll give it to you this way in third person. Suppose Dwayne wants to give David a gift of $100 for his birthday or whatever. But he doesn't think he's going to see David for a while. So Dwayne gives to me the $100 and says, hey, will you give this to David the next time you see him? It's a gift for him. So at that point, I am indebted to David. Right, to give him the $100, but not because of anything that David himself did. I'm not under obligation to David because he gave something to me that I have to pay back. I'm obligated to David because Dwayne purposed to give him a gift. And so on behalf of Dwayne, I am under obligation to David to deliver the gift. I think it's a really helpful way to think about this. Christ has given the gift of salvation and repentance and faith and eternal life, and he's and he's called Paul, 
by this commissioning as an apostle to bring it to the Gentiles. And so in other words, Christ has purposed to get the gospel to the Gentile world. And so Paul now is under obligation to the Gentiles, not because of anything they did, but because of what Christ intends to give them through his ministry. Does that make sense? So he's under obligation because Christ has commissioned him to carry the gospel to them. And so Paul has this strong sense of moral compulsion, I must come to you and preach the gospel because this is what Christ has called me to do. I have this gift for you that Christ intends me to give you. And so I must be there. I've tried over and over to get there. I think that sort of maybe explains why he is so energetic and emphatic about his longing to be in Rome. So Paul is under obligation to Greeks and barbarians because Christ has commissioned Paul to preach the gospel to them. So what he owes them then is what he says in verse 15. The gospel, right? It is for that reason. That's what the word so means in verse 15. So I am eager. Why? Because he's under obligation to the Gentiles, right? Greeks and barbarians, top and bottom. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now the last note that I, that I want to draw out before we wrap up here is just the notion that Paul is going to Rome or intending to go to Rome in order to preach the gospel to people who already believe it, right? He's already made clear that his audience is those who are uh, called to belong to Jesus Christ, those who are loved by God and called to be saints. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Christians. That's his audience. His audience is Christians in Rome. And he says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. But wait a minute. These people already believe the gospel, right? These are already Christians. Why does Paul want to preach the gospel to Christians? And the basic answer for that is, there is never more than the gospel for Christians to gain. There is only more of the gospel. You can only go deeper into the riches of the gospel. You can only come to fuller understandings of all that God has given to you in Christ through the gospel. And so the preaching of the gospel is not only the message that unconverted sinners need to hear in order to repent and trust in Christ. It is that. But it is the very same message that is needed by those who already belong to Christ. The gospel is the need of the church, not just the unchurched. The way that sinners are converted and the way that Christians are sanctified is the very same. Repeated exposure to and meditation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need, you need, the very same thing that your unbelieving friend down the road needs. The very same thing that the Gentile sinners needed. And the very same thing that the church in Rome needed. Namely, the gospel of Christ over and over again. I think it's worth asking, if we aim to be faithful servants of Christ, it's worth asking ourselves, am I eager to preach the gospel? It might also be worth asking, am I eager to hear the gospel? Do I recognize my ongoing need for God's work in me through the gospel? 
One of my favorite old hymns says this, I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. It's that gospel, the power of God for salvation, that forms the backbone of this letter. And that's the very claim that we'll, we'll turn our attention to next week in verses 16 and 17. But for now, let me simply ask you this. Have you received this good news? Has the grace of God in Christ yet found you in your sin and brokenness and restored you to life? Peace with God and hope for eternity flow freely in the gospel of Christ. Those who will repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Those who will confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will find new and lasting life in the Lord Jesus today. Sinners and saints alike receive that gospel of grace today. Let's pray together.